Welcome to another international break edition of La Pausa Pod. Spain plays Scotland and Norway on Thursday and Sunday, respectively. But we're here today to talk about Atletico Madrid and Barcelona with some notes at the end on Sevilla, Villarreal and Zaragoza. Not that Zaragoza, Brian Zaragoza. I'm joined by Jamie as always. Jamie, how are you doing? Yeah, very well, thanks. I know I keep... When I've spoken about Zaragoza, my mind just instantly goes to, I'm speaking about the team and I just get incredibly confused. So maybe we'll call him Brian on this episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it is confusing. But on, on the actual Real Zaragoza, they're starting to stumble a little bit in the Segunda. It looked like they were kind of going to cruise to automatic promotion, but they've had a couple of stumbling, uh, a couple of stumbles in the last few weeks. So we'll we'll talk about them maybe at a later date, but... Have you been watching much Segunda? No, no, I've just just not had the time to really keep up with it. It's, I mean, it's one of those leagues as well that you can like watch a load in September in and October, and come April and May, it's just totally useless information. Like the table has flipped on its head. So, yeah, I do like the international break, so I can check in. But yeah, just not had the time recently, and yeah, I don't really know what's happening with Zaragoza at the moment. But we did say on that uh, podcast when we spoke about them, like everything we're saying now, all the eulogies we're giving them, like mm. could could flip at any moment because that's just Segunda. So we'll jump straight in here with Atletico Madrid's game against Real Sociedad at the Civitas Metropolitano last Sunday. They won that 2-1. They outperformed Real Sociedad with an XG of 2.36 to 1.21. A game of two halves, Atletico were comfortable in the first half, Real got much better in the second half. What were your initial thoughts on that, Jamie, when you were watching it? Well, coming into the match, I thought if either team was going to win it, it was clearly going to be by one goal. I'd, I couldn't really pick either way coming into it who I thought would win, but I just I just felt the margins would be so fine and that it's exactly how it turned out. Like you said, a game of two halves, Atletico were better in the first, Real Sociedad came into it a lot more in the second. They had over 70% possession in the second half. So they really had Atletico penned in. And as Alguacil said, after just when it felt like we were, you know, going after the 2-1 is when arrived the 2-1 in favour of Atletico. So I felt it was a game between two really good teams. Real Sociedad had a bit unlucky to not take anything. I would say quite, quite a bit unlucky. Uh, yeah, to not take anything, but it's been a really good month for Real Sociedad. I don't think losing by a single goal away to Atletico is is uh, too damaging at all. What did you think of Real Sociedad's setup for this game? We've spoken a lot on this pod about Oyar Sabal, Baranachea, Umar Sadiq, the striker situation. And I was watching Atletico against Feyenoord, and the reason that Feyenoord caused Atletico problems was because they had a man that was dropping onto Koke and making Koke do work, do, do get involved in in out of possession stuff. Whereas when he against Real Sociedad, Oyar Sabal wasn't really dropping off to to make Koke do anything, and I just think that the four three three really suited Atletico, given the fact that the that Rodrigo de Paul was able to shut off Traore when he got the ball and stop Bryce Mendes from getting the ball. And then on the other side, Mikel Marino too. So 
did you think that Algoasil was a little bit inflexible with that? They got better in the second half, but do you think he could have done something, for example, start Umar Sadiq at number nine, have him drop off, and then give them the option for the ball over the top two? I just felt like it was it was very... And I must say, Atletico Madrid out of possession are, are probably one of the best out of possession sides in, in Spain and, and one of the better sides in Europe. But I just wondered if... if Alguacil could have changed his, his tactics a little bit to, to put more pressure on Atletico. It, it felt very safe the first half, is, is what I felt watching it. They they used the same same system where it's basically a 4-1, 4-1 in possession. Um, and they had the fullbacks really deep. I, I don't know if you've noticed it as well when watching Real Sociedad, but... It's strange to see like the the back four like basically in a line in possession, but there's a there's a clear mm. reason for it. They 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 play those short passes out to Traore and Ayen in this case where it's not really a pass that does anything in 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 itself. But what they want to do is try and pull midfielders and attackers towards the ball so they can then pop it back around and create space. But yeah, it just Atletico weren't really biting on it in this game, and it felt like they just couldn't really move them in the first half. Everything was quite static. They are a very positional team, Real Sociedad. The players don't tend to move that much uh, from within that 4-1-4-1. And yeah, Alguacil said we lacked bravery in the first half. I'm not sure it was bravery or, or coming into the game. I thought they would play like this, but I wasn't sure if it was a case of they just wanted to keep the game under control to begin with to try and build some frustration it, it felt very slow and they were just sort of moving side to side without you know actually punching through but yeah s- second half that changed and I think it was just Atletico ran out of legs a little bit they had to make changes uh the Paul went off um a few, few that was the big one yeah DePaul, DePaul going off because he was so good out of possession in that the ball went out to Traore and I have the stats here. So Traore touched the ball the most times of any Real Sociedad player. He touched it 94 times. It was actually most in the game by any player. And Ian Munoz was second with 92 touches. Traore is 94. I don't know if I said 94, but yeah, it was 94. And what Rodrigo DePaul did was he, he sat back a little bit and blocked that pass into Bryce Mendez. Lino was on Kubo and they were completely, there was, there was no way through. And it, it was just a really good disciplined game from Rodrigo de Paul. I'm watching the Feyenoord game. The reason why Feyenoord had luck with that was one part was what I said was that they had a man dropping off on the Koke, but it was because Saul was positioned about 10 yards forward and that pass inside to the interior was on. With Rodrigo de Paul, de Paul on the field, it was never on. So when he went off, that did give them a few more options. Yeah, and it, it was interesting as well that the changes that happened on both benches, like Real Sociedad got significantly stronger and Atletico got weaker. If you look at the benches, mm-hmm. Real Sociedad had more options uh, coming off that bench to, to help change that game. And obviously they did with the equaliser from, from Oyasabal. He gets the goal and yeah, it was well taken, good control. And it was he was under control himself to, to finish it. But the pass from Fernandez, oh, yeah, you could see it happening. Like Oyasabal in miles of space on the opposite side of pitch. But it was a different matter of... 
can Fernandez see it himself and then execute it at pitch level? And he did it perfectly. So, yeah, Real Sociedad were, were on top at that point and Atletico didn't really react after 1-1. I didn't feel in, in, in a strong way. They The game balanced out a little bit, but it didn't feel like there was a, a huge surge coming from Atletico to try and get a winner. But, you know, they got it in the end with that, that penalty and... It was a game decided by a very fine margin, and I don't really want to buy too much into Atletico showed, you know, title title winning spirit or whatever. And Real Sociedad fell short. I, I felt there was very little in the game, and that reflects very well on Alguacil. I think after the month they've had Champions League games, to run them that close away in a game between two two sides that we know are very good and going to be in top four minimum in, in the case of both the season, you know, no, no need to worry at all for, for L'Oreal, I'd say. No, and, and a couple of positives for Atletico were that Samuel Lino looked really good. And w- one of the reasons why Atletico, and that, that, that's on the left-hand side, but, but on the right-hand side, they, one of the reasons, just going back to my point about why didn't they change up the tactics, they played Baranechea on the, on the, on Real Sociedad's left, which was against Atletico Madrid's right, because of just how good Molina is, and they needed Baron Echea's athleticism, his his work ethic, and dropping back against Llorente too. And I think Baron Echea and Munoz were were needed there because if you play Arsabal, obviously he wants to push forward more, and he's not as uh, defensively minded. So, but on the other side of the field, Samuel Lino, he took his goal really, really well. But and and he, he's building his case now to be the heir to Carrasco. But I actually think he's better than Carrasco in a way because you never, not never, but it's been it was a long time since Carrasco was that direct in his running. The way that the way that Lino did against Real Sociedad on Sunday with with the with the opening goal. Yeah, it was a really good run. The, t- the timing of it's superb, and I'm not sure. I'll quite join you yet in saying he's better than Carrasco, but I do think he has the potential to be f- for sure in um, across the next few years, assuming he settles into this team. We know it's not easy for a guy to come in f- from com- completely from outside and settle in a Simeone team. There's not many that do it, but Lino's looked very good. And even defensively, like the way he held up against Kubo was uh, pretty eye-opening. He did have help from from Emoso coming across and De, De Paul, like you said, helped him out. But yeah, I mean, if he can balance his game, we know he's he's got talent going forward. He was a pure winger at Valencia, and he did lots of damage. You know, carrying the ball, committing defenders, and I like his decision making as well. He's for a winger, he doesn't give the ball away that much. You know, unforced errors. He decides well. He seems under control when he's carrying the ball. So. Yeah, it, probably the big plus from from the game for Let's Go, along with the return of Coke and the Paul. I suppose I was a little bit unfair there to Carrasco. Carrasco was obviously excellent for Atletico for years, but he would have always been an eight. We'll just say, and whereas I think Lino has the potential to be a to be a nine or even a ten. And but but it, but the variance there is is also greater because he he's liable to not do as well as Carrasco did, and 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 just kind of fall asleep or something like that but he he's been excellent yeah and i thought he was excellent again on 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 sunday and so yeah a massive 
couple of weeks there for Real Sociedad. They're drawn one and one one in the Champions League now under a turn to to European football, Champions League football. And okay, they're not they're not qualified for the next round yet, but they're putting in a really good effort in, on that front and then in the Liga they've got they've straightened themselves out after a kind of rocky enough start to run 15 points after 9 games so pretty happy spot for Real Sociedad to be in but I do think Alguacil is still kind of playing around with that attack line I don't think that's that Barniche or Sabal combination is is and maybe I'm just trying to talk this into <laughs> talk this into existence because I keep saying it but I I think Umar Sadiq is a starter on this team, and I just he only played a minute on Sunday. I don't really understand what's going on there. Yeah, I think it's a case of Baraneche has come in and done really well, and he's the the guy on the left that provides the real winger balance in this team. You know, between him and Kubo on the right, and mm. you know they came away from the midfield diamond from last season, and they're back to four three three now, or four one four one, however you want to call it, and. Baranache, you know, he is the guy who who fits best on that left hand side if you want a real winger. But then he also, you know, he's he's really big on Oyasabal being in the team. You know, by any means, Alguacil. I don't know if you saw the quote, but um, he said he said um, you know, if anybody is doubting Mikel Oyasabal, then they they know absolutely nothing about football. I think we'll say no offense taken, uh, Imanol. Because we did, uh, we did speak about him, but honestly, I, I think it's a case of Oyasabal was not playing well. I don't, I don't think I'm really willing to change my mind on that. It's a case of pure management from Alguacil. He's coming out and defending his player to the absolute maximum and setting the record straight. Because you know, it's uh, it's one thing what he thinks privately and what he has to show uh, show publicly, and I, I don't think by any means like. Alguacil was, you know, doubting Oyasabal massively, but I don't think you could have watched him for for a number of months and thought this is this is going well. And if he stays like this, you know, no problem, you know. But he's he's come back into the team. He's he's got some goals recently, and I thought second half, especially in this match, he played well. So yeah, it. it but I agree the the number nine position is definitely a bit of an open book still. The, so we'll move on to Granada now, who played Barcelona and drew with them two all. Brian Saragossa got a couple of goals. Big talking point from that one was Jules Cundé's injury. And I suppose for me, what I thought was and has been a, an issue for, for Xavi in recent weeks is just all the changes that have had to be made due to injuries. And they, while a lot of the changes the quality is still on the field and Gabby is, is still playing. He's being moved around too much. Yeah, yeah. Did you get, do you get that sense when you're watching them? Yeah, um, ex- exactly that because, you know, you look at the team on paper in the midfield yesterday, you've still got Gavi and Gundogan occupying two of the three midfield spots and, you know, a lot of teams in Europe would be quite happy with that uh, every week. But yeah, it's, it's a case of the roles because, I mean... The, the first goal they conceded yesterday, just, just to reference that one quickly, because it, it's, it's a pretty big mistake from Gavi to, to receive the ball there and decide he's going to bring it down and turn, you know, 10 seconds into a match against Granada team that you know under Paco Lopez are aggressive. 
Gabby loses it, and then Gundawan tries to recover, but you know, ball recovery is not his uh, is not his biggest strength. We'll say, and he's the guy who is playing closest to the back four out of possession. So, the great players, we know that, but given the injury situation, they're playing in roles that is it's not an ideal situation for Xavi, and yeah, that, it, it was a big part of the game. Uh, you have to say. He had a quote from Xavi on that was, the order was to play facing forward and then play behind whoever jumped to press because we said that the pivotes jump out a lot and do try to attack that ball. And and the first thing that happened in this game is this, which is Gabby losing the ball. And I think that that actually speaks volumes to what I'm talking about in that Gabby usually plays on the right of that midfield and, and, and is a little bit further forward and he roams around there looking for spaces and trying to poke at the the opposition defense but he was playing in almost that Frankie de Jong role and he coughed up the ball when he was kind of trying to bring it forward when he loses the ball in more attacking areas it's no real big deal but when you lose the ball there you're giving up a chance and we spoke about this during the Girona Real Madrid game but you're going to get chances against these big sides one or two a game it's a matter of whether or not you take them Brian Zaragoza got two and he took both of them now the second one wasn't really he wasn't given that chance. He had to create that himself, but which was just fabulous. And we'll speak about that now in a minute. But yeah, Brian Zaragoza took those two chances. And on on Gabby, I was looking at his stats this season in La Liga. It's the most amount of touches he's had. Oh, sorry, in all games, it's the most amount of touches he's had. He had one hundred and three touches, which is by far he he had a eighty seven against Mallorca, but. He also, it was the most amount of take-ons he had and the most amount of dribbles attempted. And he also lost the ball 10 times. He can't play that the young role. And okay, you think, but it's an interior in, in, in the Barcelona's 4-3-3, but it's not. It's, it's, and this is the point. Ilke Gundogan is still involved in the middle three in a Barcelona 4-3-3, but it's, it's, he's playing as a pivot. It's a very, very different role. And I just think them, what you, you're losing Gabby, Fermin Lopez was very good, I thought, and he looked really good, and I think he will be really good, but I just think you're losing what Gabby brings to that role then. So I think th- that's probably the issue for Barcelona at the moment. Like, once they signed Joe Cancelo and Joe Felix, they beat Barcelona 5-0, and then they beat Antwerp 5-0. Oh, beat- Beat, Since beat then, Betis five 0 Oh, who did I say? Barcelona. <laughs> oh, sorry, they beat Betis. <laughs> they beat themselves. They're that good. They beat themselves. They beat Betis five 0 and beat Antwerp five 0 Then three two against Celta Vigo, which was a little bit too close for comfort. They drew two all with Mallorca. Beat Sevilla one 0 with a late enough goal. Beat Porto one 0 with a questionable enough performance and then now they've drawn with Granada is are the injuries and are the is the moving around of positions going to cut it this time for Xavi or or does he need to do more with the players that he now has Um, I'm not really inclined to you know kill Xavi at the moment like for his managerial um, approach what he's doing with the team I think any manager would probably suffer with the, the problems they're having with injuries in, in their current form. 
And just speaking specifically about this game, I felt like coming into it, I was I was concerned that Granada would would find ways to, to to damage Barcelona. I mean, I don't say that as a Barcelona fan, but I have to write um, a preview for Betfair and I have to you know make predictions about the game. And I I didn't feel comfortable at Barcelona winning this. Just seeing how they fared against Celta and Mallorca. All three teams playing five at the back, slight variations, but yeah, the, the fact they conceded so early and with with a mistake that was basically out of Xavi's hands, like you don't need to sit in a Barcelona team talk to know that Granada are going to start fast, and you probably shouldn't try turn right into their press ten seconds into the game, like to, and then to Stegen as well. I mean, he should do better for that goal. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say. So the start in the game in you know at a 1-0 deficit obviously but they've totally changed the game plan now for for Granada who can sit deeper obviously it it ups the noise in the stadium it ups the the spirit level in the opposition and I mean I know we're talking about Barcelona against Granada here but if you're 1-0 down playing against a team with five across the back everybody is switched on it's really tough I mean and you look at the weapons that Granada still retained on the counter. Zaragoza, you know, ran ran the second goal practically on his own. They had Azuni as well. He, he's he's a really dangerous runner. Boyer played well. You know, I I, I know we can't really say um, that Barcelona were, you know, oh, they were given a great game by Granada because a lot of people just won't accept that. But I do think that was the case. Like. To go two 0 down with in that fashion, I think it just set them up for for a, for a tough evening. And, and the problem is conceding the goals. I, I don't think they're going to have problems scoring. It's whether you know, see, see, you know, we've seen Felix and Cancelo come in. It's it's been great in terms of fluidity of play and and creating chances. But they they're conceding goals at a much a much higher rate than last season and. We've said a lot of nice things about Cancelo as well, but he's swapping him for Koundé at right back, even though nobody was too happy about that. It, it's it's going to be a defensive downgrade. So the injuries are the the main thing for Barcelona, but they're of course things that Xavi is is going to have to keep an eye on uh, in coming weeks. And the fact that they don't really have, not really, they don't have a replacement for, for Lewandowski. Ferran Torres started this game and just, like you said there, but you go a goal down, all of a sudden that means you have to score two without getting caught on the counter to win tr- three points rather than just the one. Obviously, very, very basic maths here. But the... The yeah, and, and Granada did have that uh, counter attacking threat, especially with Brian Zaragoza and and the other players that you mentioned. And I I just think with Lewandowski and and we're talking about the switching of roles and and the the the, the changing of the dynamic of the team. It mightn't sound like it's that important, but it is because of the autumn the automatisms that happen between certain players and in certain areas of the pitch where and, and Ferran Torres came in and he just didn't have that same connection with Joe Felix, the movement and, and things like that. I thought that, and especially when you can go one down, it means that Granada could sit back even deeper and just 
just catch you on the counter while you pushed and had to have to push forward. So I think Ferran Torres looked, unfortunately for him, in a, a pretty big chance for him to start and get a couple of goals. He was kind of swamped once they went a goal down and it got even worse from there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, another thing to, to note is that this Granada team is going by XG conceded from open play is, is the worst defence in La Liga from open play. 15.1 uh, for them this season. But it, it was the, the change in the game that going 1-0 up so early affords you. Nobody would tune into that game and think Granada are, are a terrible defensive team. It, it was the fact they could play a different game. And if they, if Barcelona had you know come through that first, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes at 0-0, I think they would have grown into the game much more comfortably. Granada would have left more space for them to play because Paco Lopez is manager who takes risks. He, he did say, you know, we're going to come into this game, you know, and we're conscious that we're not going to create, an, you know, a, you know, an overwhelming number of chances, but they certainly would have left more space and gone after the game a little bit higher and left, you know, opportunities for Barcelona to attack better than they could against the what became a 5-3-2, then 5-4-1, and then I think they finished the game in a 5-5-0. So, yeah, the key for Barcelona is just stop getting into these situations against Celta, against mm. Mallorca, against Granada. Don't concede that first goal through sloppy errors, and you're going to have a much more favourable scenario to try and, you know, get your play up and running. So if we are to just pick a pick a best eleven for Barcelona right now, it's it's Ter Stegen, João Cancelo, Koundé, Araujo, or Christensen, some combination of those three centre backs, and then Balde. Is it De Jong or Romeo at, as the pivot? Because I I don't know. Maybe we'll name the eleven, and then we'll come back to this because I don't know if Xavi fully trusts Romeo there. So De Jong in the left interior and then either Gundogan or Pedri or Gabi in the right interior and then we'll just say Yamal, Lewandowski and Joe Felix, yeah? Yeah, I think so. Um, but yeah, even then, like it shows, it's difficult to to settle on the midfield three or four, however you want to call it, and how it changes in possession. Um, yeah, Barcelona conceding goals... And it's a problem compared to last season where it was not a problem for them whatsoever. It's why they won the title because conceding that amount of goals, um, you know, it did. they did start to add up once it was sort of clear Barcelona already winning the title. But up to the point where the title was in play, like their goals conceded tally was, it's hard not to win the league conceding that few goals. So, yeah, yeah I guess for Xavi, it'll come down to we spoke about the midfield, but also for central defence, like Christensen, if you get rid of him, I think he's, I think he's probably Barcelona's best passing centre-back as, as a pure passer. I think Koundé's got more tools to, to take off with a dribble and, you know, uh, provoke defenders. He's a good passer as well, but Araujo, I do think is the, the best pure defender, but I, I, I still see a, quite a lot missing from his game in possession if he's to be considered in that you know, absolute best centre-back in the world. I think defensively he's right there, but in possession he's still missing a bit. So 
Chabi's got to judge whether he wants to reinforce a team defensively, as they did last season, or whether they're committing to being not a more attractive team, but a more attacking team with more options on the pitch. Because, I mean, Cancelo, we love watching him play. He's he's an unbelievable talent at fullback. But you look at the two goals they conceded against Celta, I think you can attribute some blame for Cancelo there. Maybe not him, you know, in pure individual terms, because he's playing a role that Xavi is, you know, obviously given the green light for. But last season they had Koundé at right back, and now they've got a guy who is basically a media punter from from right back. So I think it's natural. There's going to be balance issues. It's if Cancel's in the team and you can score a ton of goals, then that's fine. But in in this intermediate period where you are conceding, Xavi is going to have to reconfigure some some bits. I think if if Xavi can just see out this difficult spell with Lewandowski, Rafinha, Pedri, De Jong, Koundé injured, which they have been doing. They won two uh, Champions League games. They're just three points behind Real Madrid. Big Clasico coming up now in about two, three weeks. And they'll be missing a lot of their, those players that I just mentioned there for that. But if they can even get a draw in that game, they're still right there. So if we can just kind of get through this tough period without losing too much, those names that I just mentioned will be back, you'd hope, for, for Xavi eventually. And he can pick from his best team. And then we'll be able to see what, what's he trying to do here. How good are they at creating chances? How good are they at preventing giving up chances? So all in all, I think I think you're right. I don't think you can really say too much other than the fact that it's been injury after injury for him and that's just something that they got they have to deal with right now and get through these games. Moving on then to a player who was just incredible for those two goals especially and who has been incredible all season and going back to last season, Brian Saragossa just got called up to the Spain squad. He almost turned Jules Kunde into a pretzel. <laughs> For, for for the second goal last night, I'm oh, sorry, it was uh, Sunday Sunday night, and just 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 an incredible talent, a player who you've spoken about a lot, even last year when we were doing the pod. Yeah, we did mention him on the preseason preview um, for, for Granada as a player, definitely definitely to watch. Um, he didn't play that much in Segunda last season, but it was clear that he was a a pretty electric talent what he's done this season and and I say this season not not just against Barcelona but has been really impressive as as a as a pure 1v1 cover for defenders it doesn't get much tougher in in La Liga at the moment and you know he he did turn Jules Kunde into a pretzel like he said but I find it difficult to 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 really pick on Kunde in that sense because if you look at the moment that Gumbao plays the ball through Koundé is already on his way back to goal. He's ahead of Zaragoza. He's he's prepared himself for the run. But the pass is good. Zaragoza gets there first. He, he's on the right side of Koundé to get there first. And then once you're in that position, I don't think there's a defender in La Liga who who you feel confident is going to have the upper hand there. And Zaragoza, as well as being you know unbelievably fast and tricky, he can change direction so fast. The fact he's so small that when you're running alongside him, you can't really go body to body with him because he's kind of at your waist. So I think Kunde had a problem there that he was trying to sort of establish some contact and bother him, but 
he's just so slippery that like you know he just cut back inside and Kunde was was totally out of the picture. But it was also very very brave because once he nutmegged him the first time, most players would have just been like, oh, I I have to shoot. They'd panic and shoot. But Saragossa cut back inside, cut back outside again, and I don't think Kunde. That's when Kunde got completely bamboozled because he was not expecting that and then i think the t- the kind of toe poked finish as well was just was just <laughs> i don't think they were expecting him to hit it that quickly and in that direction either so just just absolutely excellent and just some stats on him most completed take-ons in la liga this season 28 only leroy sane with 36 has more completed take-ons across the big five leagues and no player in Europe's five leagues has more carries including a take-on attempt than Saragossa this season which are pretty incredible numbers on their own merit but the fact that he's doing this with a team that looks like they're relegation fodder only after just nine games it, it really is you wonder where where's the ceiling for this guy yeah the talent is there and his his talent translates to to any scenario in world world football because he's got the speed uh the agility the invention to to go past pretty much any player in the world like people will see him doing it against barcelona and take that as verification but this guy's a really good player but he's been dicing defenders up all season long uh there was a game against betis uh a week, a week or two ago, where he came on in the second half and just, just uh, went past Abner like he wasn't there every single time, and and got Granada back into the game with with a nice cross as well uh, to assist the equaliser. So his um, his performances have been there all season long, and I think we have to give Paco Lopez credit as well because Zaragoza is is a pure winger in footballing terms, but he's used him at the top of the 4-4-2 as well, so that when the ball does change hands quickly, as we saw in their second goal against Barcelona, that if you can feed him and he, he's on, on the move already on that that last line, you know, he's he's just such a problem for teams. Jules Kunde couldn't hold up, so if he can't, then there's, there's not many that can. So, yeah, a, a huge talent for Granada, but credit to Paco Lopez as well for putting him in in the right positions and knowing that he can take him off the wing and use him in different ways. Hopefully we'll get a look at him now during the international break with Spain. Uh, he, they played that game on Sunday night and I think at like 12.30 that on, it would have been Monday morning he was, he was called up to the Spain squad so just an incredible day for him and Let's just hope he, his, his star keeps rising because he's a lot of fun to watch. So moving on then, lastly, to just a couple of talking points. Villarreal are stumbling since they signed Pacheta. They've only scored more than two goals in one game out of seven so far, and that was against Almeria. They've lost three, drawn two, and just have just two wins. They currently sit 16th in the table, and it got really, really bad under Seti End of Vibe. We, we spoke about this before about how the players, they weren't on the same page. They had requested that the club speak to Setien in the off se- in the preseason and bring in some new coaches and change some certain things with training and things like that. Setien said he wouldn't do it. He, sorry, he brought in a coach 
after those requests in the summer, but then there was other requests after that about changing the time of training and things like that. Set the end didn't want to do it. It got really, 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 really toxic that atmosphere, according to that report in Relevo. And they've moved on. They were about to side Raul from Real Madrid's uh, Castilla. That fell through, and Pacheta came in, and it. I just wonder how where 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 this all ends for Villarreal. Yeah. I think when we both saw Pacheta come in, we thought it was a, a decision rooted in emotion and sort of healing the dressing room because he's he's such a, a nice guy, a positive guy, adds a lot of energy um, back, back into the club. But it, it's pretty clear now after the number of games he's had that that's not going to be a, a quick fix. And yeah, I, I just want to give a shout out. Um, the tweet I saw from uh, Bruno Alemani, and he basically said, oh, it seems um, that being able to take your kids to school on a morning wasn't the, the problem, uh, wasn't the solution to uh, VRL's problems. Uh, who could have known that? And uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it just shows, yeah, Setien has gone. And like like a lot of people, we probably assumed that with him would go the, the negative energy, but it's, it's still very much there. And I mean, in the second half against Las Palmas, there was this bizarre moment where they were chasing to get back in the game and Pareko was basically just stood on the ball, not not doing anything. The crowd were whistling him and he, he wasn't speeding up or anything. <laughs> it was uh, it was just bizarre that there's, there's this disconnect still seems to be there between, you know, the board, the fans and the players. Pareko is being actively whistled by by his his own fans in this match, and that's got nothing to do with Setien. You know, when Setien went, there were reports that, oh yeah, we're glad we'll be able to to run and train properly again, and we're gonna we're gonna be serious. And I think the performances are worse now than they were under Setien. So, how much you want to attribute that to Pacheta? Because still a very good group of players, um, not as good as last season, we should say. You know they have sold players, but they they really shouldn't be in this situation. And their stats kind of back up the the very meh feeling about about the team at the moment. They in those five games since Pacheta took over, they're basically expected goals are below average, six point nine three in five games. They sorry five point five eight goals expected goals which is down around the bottom of the table um, alongside likes of Mallorca and then their expected goals against is exactly the same down at the bottom of the table not really I mean yeah it's it's just a feeling now where where Villarreal once had an identity a specific identity under Unai Emery whether you liked it or not and and under set the end for, for a little spell it didn't last very long they had some kind of identity but right now it just feels like they, they, they don't know where they're at and you will be worried about them. Moving on then to Sevilla, who are had a very, very specific identity under Mendilibar, but no longer because they fired him and they've signed Diego Alonso, the former Uruguay coach. And we, we kind of saw this one coming with Sevilla. They had been, this season, Mendilibar's approach just wasn't working and his attempts to 
to solve the problem was to cross the ball more, which was the root of his problem to begin with. So <laughs> it just felt like they were going around in circles. Yeah, we, at the time of them winning Europa League last season and talking about should he stay on, pretty sure we both said that we agreed it was fair to keep him on, but also it's, it's no surprise that it's ended like this um, so soon, to be honest. Um, I tweeted on the account the other day that they, they put in 48 crosses against Rayo Vallecano and they scored with, or, or they equalised uh, with the 48th cross of the match. So you can look at it two ways. Either the crossing was, was the solution to the match or crossing was a problem. And I think it's very much a problem because they dropped points in, just just to pick out two of the home games that they dropped points in, uh, Girona and Sevilla, they put in a combined 98 crosses across those two games, which crossing in itself is not a problem. If you've got Nisiri in the box, of course it makes sense to put the, the ball into the box, but it felt like they just never had the alternatives to to overcome different types of challenges in, in, the, in the league campaign. They were a good European team. There's no doubt about that. I think the fact that they were the underdog in, in the majority of those European games really served them well. And they could play in a more direct style and not have to take the responsibility of the game in possession all the time. That that really helped them. And when they got back to the league, the performances just weren't good enough. So it was no surprise to me as well, knowing that Victor Ort is at the club now, that, that he's... He would have been doing his homework on Sevilla's next manager from the moment that he got in, I think. There was a report saying that he defended Mendilibar a little bit um, in terms of his continuity, but I think deep down, Orta was probably knew that a new manager would be uh, on his agenda pretty soon. So, yeah, I don't know anything about Diego Alonso, to be honest. So, uh, I'm not sure if, if you know anything uh, besides that. Uh, We've not had much chance to research because it's only been announced today. So, yeah. The so you obviously have experience as a Leeds fan watching Victor Orta's teams. Orta had no input into the signing of Mendilibar because Monchi was was in charge of that, and he did it. He took care of that, and then he left. And so Orta, you 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 have watched him with Leeds in the Premier League. What were the characteristics he looked for um so i guess the the auto era at leeds is the high point of it is of course hiring bielsa which was at the time a massive risk and uh, a very auto decision to go absolutely all or nothing that was a, a huge success of course um you know bielsa totally changed the club but then after Bielsa went, his his decisions uh, and the directions that he went in were just really erratic. He went for Jesse Marsh, who was a red, you know, a guy from the Red Bull system. Which to, to us fans, it felt like we reduced the team from being comfortable in possession, an aggressive team, a team who pressed a lot, to a team who literally just pressed and had absolutely no capability or set up on the ball to to effectively move it around. So. My worry for Sevilla is once uh, Orta picks his man, he's he's very wedded to them. So there the were reports last, se- um, yeah, last season when when Leeds got relegated that 
Marsh, uh, he was in trouble and there were a lot of fans, including me, that were saying, you know, now is the time to get rid, but Orta really dug in um, according to how it was reported around the club, saying, you know, if, if you get rid of him, I'm going. So I think when once he picks his guy, he really will hang on to him uh, long after is necessary because, it, you know, it, it's, it's a, a choice made in his name. So hopefully for Sevilla, uh, Diego Alonso gets off to a good start because... Yeah, if if this one goes south, knowing that he's he's not a real name, he's not. Um, I don't think he's worked in Europe, has he, at all yet? So yeah, it's it's a very outside the box choice uh, and typical of Orta, uh, I have to say. Yeah, he, he he trained a bunch of clubs here, but most recently Monterey from two thousand eighteen to nineteen, then Inter Miami for a couple of years pre Messi. Then Uruguay for the last two years and now Sevilla. So, yep, you those of you listening probably know more than about Diego Alonso than we do right now because we haven't had a chance to see his teams play other than at the World Cup, which was a little bit underwhelming. But we can't really say speak a whole lot on that. But we will uh, once we get a chance to watch his Sevilla team after, and he has the entire international break now to figure out what he's going to do next. But. That should do it from us. We also just wanted to give a shout out to Las Palmas, one of the uh, 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 friends of the pod, Las Palmas, um, who had struggled to to begin with, and we weren't sure. They played Celta Vigo two weeks ago, and it was a relegation six-pointer. They won that one late on, and then they went and won again at the weekend, and they moved up now to 10th place, in and they're four points outside of Europe. So... Jamie has said that if they make it into Europe, he's going to go to every single game. Um, he said that off air, so I'm going to hold him to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, great uh, week or so for Las Palmas. Obviously, picking up two wins. Um, just glad it gives uh, Garcia Pimienta the the credit in the bank to keep working on their way of playing because stylistically, they're they're a really nice addition to La Liga. And if they can, you know, get those points in the bag, then it give it gives him uh, the rope to keep working. And we've seen with Michel at, at Girona that there there are really good managers out there in Spain, but a lot of them don't get the chance to really roll out what they want to do and the time to do it. You know, if if he hadn't taken the Girona job, we'd have spoken about him as you know the the guy who worked at Rio and Huesca, who never quite clicked in La Liga, and look at him now. So. Yeah, ho- hopefully Garcia Pimienta um, is building that platform now to to really try and um, turn Las Palmas into something um, that is uh, good for good for everyone, and especially us that are watching along. Yeah, Girona are second with twenty, almost just under twenty five percent of the games played this year. They're second, so if they can keep that going, they're. Well, they're going to finish second, but if they can keep their f- current form going, they're going to finish comfortably in Europe- European places. So that should be interesting. But we're going to let you, our listeners, go and take a breather because it's international break. You obviously got Spain on Thursday and then on Sunday again, which we'll watch and we'll be back next week to discuss Spain and to discuss some of the other goings on around La Liga, which I'm sure there'll be plenty. But from us here, at La Posa Pod HQ, it is adios.